Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now, did you know November is National Epilepsy Awareness Month? Well, a lot of people do not because they're not really quite certain what epilepsy is. This serious neurologic condition affects quite a few people out there, and there is a whole community of support available through the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii that really helps people to understand what's going on with the diagnosis and how they can help themselves or their loved ones to handle this condition so that everyone can live a, live a healthy life as much as possible. Now, today we're going to talk with members of the Queen's Epilepsy Center. They're putting on a great conference this weekend that's free to the public and to the community. We'll talk about that more in just a few minutes. But we're going to be talking today with three excellent panel members who have a lot of experience with the diagnosis and management of epilepsy. Now, to my right, if you could picture that in our studio, Mm -hmm. is Natalie Morgan-Romain. She is a nurse practitioner specialist, and she is handling a lot of the questions and concerns that people have when they first get diagnosed with this condition. Right across from the table, I have Dr. Victoria Wong, and she is a neurology expert, actually an epileptologist, and she's going to help us also to discuss a little bit more about what is epilepsy, what does it mean, and how does this affect us for those who have a history of seizures. Not all seizures are epilepsy, but for those families struggling to handle this condition, what can they do to help their loved ones as well, and what are some of the treatments that are out there for them? And then to my left, we have Kathleen Stefosik, and she is the executive director of the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii and is helping to put on this wonderful conference about trying to educate, inspire, and innovate. And so, we'll, again, we'll talk more about that a little later. But today our show is going to be talking about the neurologic condition of epilepsy. So if you or a loved one has this condition or you have questions about it, you can always join us throughout the show. We are live at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Dr. Wong, let's talk first with you. What is epilepsy? So it's important to distinguish between seizures and epilepsy. Um, So seizures are basically an electrical storm in the brain. So the brain runs on chemistry and electricity. And when the brain cells um, have an abnormal electrical charge where they all synchronize when they're not supposed to, then that can generate a seizure. Um, Epilepsy means that the brain has a propensity to have seizures. So one seizure does not make you, quote, an epileptic. That's generally true. So um, they recently changed the definition in 2014 that in um, certain cases where there's an abnormal EEG or MRI, then one seizure can um, technically be epilepsy, but that's not always the case. And certain conditions can make you more susceptible to getting seizures or being diagnosed with epilepsy. If you have a brain tumor, if you have a mass in your brain, a bleed in your brain, or something that occupies space, anything that doesn't belong there could potentially become a source of seizures and a diagnosis of epilepsy. Yep, that's absolutely correct. So um, whether it's stroke or brain tumor or anything that belong, doesn't belong in the brain, as you said. So some people think if you're not born with this, you'll never get it, but that's not the case. That's not the case at all. Um, we know that um, 
people who are very young or people who are very old have a propensity have a greater propensity to have epilepsy compared to just people who are not very young or very old. And there are some people you can have children who have febrile seizures, you can have children who have conditions which might mimic or be epilepsy at that age. Can you grow out of it? Can you develop a situation where you've been seizure-free, you're not on medicine, and you're no longer considered to have epilepsy? Yep, that can happen. So certain types of epilepsy, especially um, what we consider um, certain types of more benign genetic epilepsies, um, children can grow out of, such as um, childhood absence epilepsy, for example. So Natalie, let's talk with you for a few moments. Because when we say the word seizure, some people don't know exactly what we're referring to. Mm -hmm. So there's different types of seizures, and there's different characteristic things that someone could witness as an outsider if they saw someone having a seizure. What are some of those different types of seizures? So the generalized tonic-clonic seizure is a seizure that most of us would know. When we see it, we know what that is. The partial complex seizure, or even an absent seizure, are small periods of time where the person's just not themselves. They're phased out, they're confused, their eyes are open, but they're not able to respond. It can look many different ways. Does the person having the seizure know they're having it? The person may have a warning that they're going to have a seizure. A seizure is going to happen. It's generally very brief. During the seizure, they're not aware. So, you know, the generalized tonic-clonic, which is what a lot of people might have an image, they might see that on TV, or they might have witnessed someone having that. What should bystanders do if someone is having a generalized tonic-clonic seizure? In general, not a whole lot. In general, it's really safety. Um, making sure that if the person is has fallen to the ground, that dangerous objects are removed from them. If they happen to be hitting their head on the ground or the floor, put something soft under their head, a jacket, a, a shirt. Um, don't go reaching in their mouth. They won't swallow reaching. their tongue. Yep. Not possible to swallow your tongue. A lot of us feel like it is, but, it, but we don't put anything in people's mouth. And restricting their movements can cause injury as well. So you may be able to roll them on their side when the body relaxes, but otherwise you want to leave them alone. So even though it looks dramatic, don't stop them from doing the motions. Try and make the area around them protected. But really, the less intervention, the other better. than call 911, the better. Yeah. And even calling 911, if somebody has epilepsy, this is a symptom of their, their disorder. They have seizures. And so if the seizure stops on its own, and 99% of them do, then 911 emergency of services is not necessary unless the person has suffered an injury, may be pregnant, or has diabetes. So if you're just out there, let's just say you're, I don't know, shopping at Costco, I mean, okay, and, and there's somebody having a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, the first inclination of a lot of people is to call for help and to anticipate that they need to get other people involved, whether it be EMS, emergency personnel, or someone. But what you're saying is if you wait to see if the person's seizure resolves and they're alert and awake afterwards, what should that person do? Should they just sit there for a while, get up and go home? Yes. Yes. If the seizures stopped on their own and they're able to get up and, and they have the cognition about them to think through things, that seizure has stopped, 
then they go about their business and go on with their day. It's one of so the challenges. So I still with feel epilepsy. right. I still feel like I want to call nine one one, and you're mm-hmm. saying no, Kozak, don't do it. Now the difficulty is is that if I'm in Costco or Safeway and I see somebody having a generalized tonic-clonic seizure or even a complex partial seizure, I don't know if they have epilepsy or if this is their first seizure. So if somebody suffers their first seizure, then they should get medical attention so that we can figure out why. So you could wait until the seizure is done, ask them or someone with them if there is someone. Do they have a history of having this before? And if so, don't freak out. But if, no, they've never done this before, I've never seen it ever, then, okay, medical personnel may want to be involved. Yeah, and we generally say five minutes. Five minutes is this cutoff mark. If somebody continues to have a seizure at that five-minute mark, then it's deemed an emergency. For some, their typical seizures are longer than five minutes, so that time clock gets reset. But if the seizure lasts for a long time, then EMS does need to be called. So don't freak out. (laughs) Wait a few minutes, up to five Ask loved ones around them, has this ever happened before, and kind of go from there. Now, I'm kind of curious, Dr. Wong, what about if they want to go drive? Now, that's like a big issue because if you have seizures, you really shouldn't be driving. If they're not well-controlled, you could drive and have a seizure and injure yourself or others. So, So what's the deal with seizures and driving? Right. So anybody who has seizures with any alteration of consciousness, so whether it's generalized tonic-clonic seizures or the absence or or whatever. Exactly. Um, So in those cases, we um, recommend not driving at all because the seizures are not under control. And it's not only seizures, any other conditions that might cause any alteration of consciousness, um, we recommend not driving because that can pose a harm to the person driving as well as others on the road. Sure. We're not just picking on people with seizures. Exactly. If you have a history of, you know, other serious problems, loss of consciousness or, you know, severe vertigo incapacitating you, don't get behind the wheel of a car unless you feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. So we're not just picking on seizure people. But those who have seizures should not be driving. If you're seizure free for a certain duration of time, is it then safe? Right. So it does vary on a case-by-case basis. So in general, we say that patients can drive if they have no seizures with alteration of consciousness for six months. Um, That's not always the case. Sometimes you know, patients who have had seizures on a very regular basis and kind of finally reach that six-month mark, we might want to be more cautious and wait a longer period. Why am I a meanie? And I was thinking it was 18 months. Am I just mean? (laughs) Apparently, you're smiling. Yes, I am. I'm just mean. Or I'm outdated, which is, thankfully, people like yourself, a neurologist, epileptologist who can kind of figure out and tell people the real story. Yeah, generally six to 12 months. um, And See, you kind of met me halfway there. You're like, I'll (laughs) do six to 12. You said 18. We'll meet in the middle. We'll meet somewhere near 12. Okay. Mm -hmm. I still might be the freak who calls 911, though. I might be freaking out. Oh, no. So I'll I'll work on calming down, which should be the case if you know enough about seizures, calm the environment down around you so no one freaks out. But then also, you know, if you're in a situation where you know somebody who has seizures and they're driving, then what is the responsibility of you and I, the physicians, if we know somebody is having active seizures, not controlled, and still driving. 
Yeah. So I think there is a lot of counseling that's involved. So if there's somebody who, you know, lives with a person, like either a caregiver or a family member, and that person can have a discussion because it's really for for the well-being of the person who has epilepsy not to drive. So um, I think that there does need to be a serious discussion about that. So we usually... Um, do do a fair amount of counseling. And then in cases where we know that somebody is um, really posing a danger to themselves and driving despite having seizures, um, you know, in rare cases, um, the Department of Motor Vehicles um, does get involved and um, there is um, there can be reporting, but that's um, very rare. Sure. And we also talked about the age brackets, a lot of younger people. So we're talking children, a lot mm -hmm. of older people who may have some secondary reason for having seizures or epilepsy, whether it be strokes or tumors or or bleeds or something in their brain that doesn't belong there. Mm -hmm. They may not be behind the wheel of a car anyway. So it's right. not the usual driving crowd that we really have huge concerns about. Or maybe we do because kids and really sick elderly shouldn't be behind the wheel, but not just because of the issue with seizures or epilepsy. Right. And there's a great bus system and um, we do do disability bus passes. Um, we fill out that paperwork. So that's um, one resource. Now, I'm curious, Kathleen Stefosik, you were the executive director of the Epilepsy Foundation. Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of people come to you and they want to know more about what other resources are available mm -hmm. in the community. And we just mentioned disability bus passes. What else is out there? If somebody is struggling and saying, I have this diagnosis or, you know, my grandmother, my loved one, my auntie, my uncle has this diagnosis. What are some of the resources that are available in the community? So, you know, when it comes to a person who reaches out to the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii, um, first of all, they've, they've gone to their doctor, something has happened, and they've now received this diagnosis of having a seizure disorder or epilepsy. And that can really change someone's life, especially if they've been driving and now all of a sudden they're told they can't, they can feel very isolated and very alone. If they see their child for the first time having a seizure, that could be terrifying. And um, now they have to deal with medications or something and monitoring and, and a lot of things. So they leave the doctor's office and they are unsure where to go and, and who to reach out to. And so we really try to be active in social media and on our website, epilepsyhawaii.org, so that they know, hey, we're here to support you. So I get phone calls and people. We have support groups. We have talk stories because we want everybody to know that when they get this diagnosis, to not be ashamed or embarrassed by it, because there was a lot of stigma and a lot of shame around epilepsy and having seizures. Um, and we're here to support them. So we provide lots of different supportive programs and supportive services. The thing to understand with epilepsy is when it comes to it, um, it is actually more common than autism spectrum disorders, Parkinson's disease, um, multiple sclerosis, and cerebral palsy combined yet receives the least amount of funding. So, you know, when it has a lot of these things and it has a lot of issues and they come to us, you know, we're trying to provide these programs. We're trying to do it free because, you know, they're already going to be faced with medical issues and medical bills and things like that as well. And so if people want to know more about, you know, I think support groups are one of the unsung heroes in <laughs> medicine. Just today, I was trying to connect one of my patients who had a particular medical problem with another one who has the same medical problem and say, you know what, this guy did really well with this treatment. Why don't you talk to this other patient? Because mm -hmm. hearing from somebody who's been there, yeah. done that, and dealt with that is so powerful. And often, even as a, even as a physician, I can't say... 
I've had that. Mm-hmm. I've done that. I know what it feels like. I can say most of the patients I know think X, Y, or Z, but I can't really give that personalized history and experience. And that's where I think support groups are instrumental. And that's one of the things that we are doing at the foundation. We do. Um, we started implementing what we call Ohana outings. And Ohana outings are an opportunity that isn't a, a structured support group. It isn't where we come and we sit around a table and we talk about our issues. It's more of we're going to be out in the community doing an activity. In October, we did purple pumpkin painting because purple is the color of epilepsy awareness. And it was an opportunity for parents to meet other parents, for individuals to meet other individuals. We actually had a wonderful couple who came and their, their son passed away from SUDEP, um, sudden unexpected death from epilepsy, and they just wanted to be around others, um, you know, and and share and 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 it's a supportive environment. And those are the kinds of things that we're trying to do along with our regular support groups. And that's why during this month of November of Epilepsy Awareness Month, we're really out there in the community trying to you know spread more epilepsy awareness during this this time. Well, and I think it's also helpful if you happen to be at one of these outings and your child or whoever it may be who has epilepsy has a seizure, then no one's going to do what I would do, which is get all worried and upset about it because these are parents and they can kind of or family members or loved ones and say, been there, done that. Here's what we can do to keep them safe. And one of the nice things is when the kids come, I, you know, we have a couple eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds that have epilepsy and um, they're around other kids that have the same thing. So they're not the, the outcast. They're not the one that's like, oh, we have to be careful. You know, they can just be with each other. And I heard them over while they were painting and one says to the other, you know, seizures suck. And she's like, yeah, seizures do suck. And it was just, you know, an opportunity where, they get to meet others that are just like them, you know, and it's if we're not um, concerned or anything like that. It's it's really, really wonderful to have those kinds of um, support. Um, and that's what we try to do at the foundation. Well, and that's a critical age, too, mm-hmm. you know, because your parents can say you're perfect, you're normal, it's OK. But then if somebody of your own age group says, hey, I've got the same thing, let's go through this together. Again, that's that personalized support that I really mm-hmm. think is one of those areas that we could really help foster. And it sounds like the Epilepsy Foundation has found a way to do that. And I know that other... (laughs) Right. And there's other support groups out there. And sometimes people say, I don't want to go and sit around a table and talk about my feelings about something. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't mind talking while I'm painting a pumpkin purple or while I'm doing some other activity so that I feel like it's all part of a normal daily event. Absolutely. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with a panel of guests. I have Natalie Morgan Romaine, nurse practitioner, and Dr. Victoria Wong, epileptologist, both at the Queen's Epilepsy Center, and Kathleen Stefosik, executive director, director of the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what are some of the things that we can all do to support those who have this particular diagnosis. And we'll talk a little more about the science behind some of the medications and what to do if these medications are something that you or your loved one happens to be on. Now, as always, you can join us here in the studio at 941-3689, toll free 877-941-3689. If you or a loved one has ever had epilepsy or some some type of seizure disorder, Share your experience because what you say may just help someone else who's listening as well. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Hi, my name is Barry Hyman. I'm an investment advisor and I manage the Hawaii office for FIM Group. 
We've been proudly supporting Hawaii Public Radio since we first opened our doors in 1997. It feels good to support something that, that we value, and we think it's great for the community. So we want to make sure that Hawaii Public Radio thrive. Hawaii Public Radio underwriting. Your message heard here. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org. Depending on how you look at it, Hawaii is either connected or divided by water. Whatever you call it, on Town Square, we get together each week to take on the issues that affect our island lives. We talk with the people making the news, or about to, within Hawaii or elsewhere. And always, the discussion includes your calls. Join us Thursdays at 5 on Town Square. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, internist at Straub Medical Center, and I'm here today talking about epilepsy with some experts. We have Natalie Morgan Romaine, nurse practitioner at Queen's Epilepsy Center, Dr. Victoria Wong, neurologist, epileptologist at Queen's Epilepsy Center, and Kathleen Stefosik, executive director of the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii. And November is National Epilepsy Awareness Month. So what we're doing is discussing a little bit about what is epilepsy? How is it different than just having a seizure? And can seizures actually become something that affects you to the point where you need to take medicine regularly? The answer might just be yes. Now, as always, our conversation is yours as well. If you or a loved one has epilepsy or has some thoughts on what you were able to do to handle this for yourself, then you can always join us and what you share might just help someone else along the way. You can join us at 941-3689, toll free 877-941-3689. Now, before the break, we were talking a little bit with Kathleen Stefosik about some of the services available at the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii and some of the ways that they get people together so that those who may have this diagnosis kind of learn that it's normal, it's okay, it's a very common problem, as you mentioned, Kathleen. Mm-hmm. More common than a bunch of other diagnoses we think are common combined, Mm -hmm. autism, Parkinson's, uh, cerebral palsy, multiple multiple sclerosis, all four of those added together, not even as many people as have epilepsy. Yes. So with epilepsy, it's, it's one in 26 individuals will develop epilepsy at some point in their lifetime. And here in Hawaii, um, our data is a little bit old. We're trying to work with the Department of Health to get um, more um, current data, but we estimate there's about 15,000 um, individuals here in the state have, living with epilepsy. Um, and again, one in 26, I mean, that's very, very high. Almost one, if you p- put that in a classroom, there's usually about 25, 26 students in a classroom. At least it's, that's quite a lot. And so it's often something that we may not think of immediately, but really is an issue. And the more aware we are, the more we're able to help one another. Mm -hmm. Now, Dr. Wong, tell me, do all people who have epilepsy have to take medication? And if so, what is the medicine supposed to do? So patients who do have epilepsy have a diagnosis of epilepsy and have had um, tests showing that their brain has a propensity for creating seizures. Um, In cases like that, we um, do recommend a seizure medication, and that's the first line of treatment. Um, So as I mentioned earlier, seizures happen when there's an um, electrical... Electrical storm. (laughs) Yep, an electrical imbalance in the brain. And so um, in cases like that, um, seizure medications help to reduce that level of excitability, electrical excitability in the brain cells. So there's different types of medications. 
And there's things that, you know, I remember from way back in medical school, people talk about dilantin or phenytoin, but we've really migrated from those basic medications to some really sophisticated medicines now. What's the difference? What have we learned about how to treat this condition? So there are a lot of medications these days for treatment of epilepsy. Um, you know, back in the day, there were maybe about five medications that were really used for epilepsy, and now we have over 25. And many of the newer ones have fewer side effects than things like phenytoin, you know, dilantin, carbamazepine. So, um, you know, some of the older medications can cause problems with um, bone density. So, for example, causing osteoporosis over the long term, they can pro cause problems with gum disease or um, hair thinning or weight gain. And a lot of the newer medications don't have those side effects. Can you control symptoms of seizures with changes in diet? So there are some dietary treatments for epilepsy, but they're really um, very strict and very, um, you know, people think of dietary treatments as being um, sort of more natural way to treat epilepsy, but these are um, more not very natural diets as far as being very, very high in fat, very, very low in carbohydrates. Like a ketogenic um, diet. Exactly. Okay. So we do not recommend using those as first line. So if someone has seizures and they're treating it with medication and they still have breakthrough, this could be something to consider. It may not be the first thing that you do, but it may need to be done periodically in conjunction with treatment by your neurologist to try and get those seizures under control. Yep. So um, if seizure medications don't work, there are sort of a number of avenues that we discuss. So whether it's um, dietary treatments or um, or epilepsy surgery, even um, as far as the the next way, the, the next step in their treatments. All right. We'll talk about surgery and what that might be in just a few moments. But first, I'd like to talk to Gary from Kauai. Gary, welcome to The Body Show. Yeah. Hi. I've been listening to, to your program. Great. And excuse my dog, or if you hear chickens in the background, because I live on a ranch. But anyway, back in the 50s, when I was in grade school, I started experiencing uh, dizzy spells. These dizzy spells, I didn't go into convulsions or anything like that. I could be walking to the water fountain, going in between classroom, classrooms at the grade school that I was at. And it would force me down to one knee. To one knee. And it would... I'd stay there for less than a minute, probably, and then reconvene my activities. Back at that time, I did go see a neurologist, and he performed an EEG, proved to him it was I had an abnormality and put me on medication. Seemingly, after a year or so, I seemingly grew out of these dizzy spells. But one thing that he stated, technically, in his own language, was a differentiation between petty mal and grand mal. And I was classified as having petty mal epilepsy. Could you distinguish a little bit about that, please? That's a great question, Gary, because that really is something that a lot of people may want to know. And I'm happy to know that you grew out of it. Earlier in the show, we talked about the fact that sometimes you actually can, quote, grow out of it, particularly if you're diagnosed when you're younger. Dr. Wong, yeah. Petty mall, grand mall, what is the difference if you're experiencing it and what does it look like to the rest of us? Yep. So a grand mall seizure is um, basically a 
generalized tonic-clonic seizure. So what you think of as a classic seizure, a convulsion, um, a petite mal, I think that um, term, so we don't use that term as much anymore. Um, we, we use it kind of in a casual manner, but there's been changes in naming of seizures and epilepsies um, to try to make that language more precise so that people um, don't have that same question that you did. Um, so in general, what we think of as a petite mal seizure is um, a, a smaller seizure that doesn't result in fall, that doesn't involve a big convulsion. So any type of momentary um, you know, loss of consciousness where you're just staring or just having a dizzy episode, um, cases like that we call um, petite mal seizures. So that could be the partial complex or absence seizures? Right, exactly. So the, so these days, we um, because we have more EEG technology and we're able to um, diagnose and distinguish between um, more different seizure types and give more information based on genetics or imaging, um, we can use those more precise terms rather than saying petite mal. All right, Gary, I hope that helps explain the difference between the two. And, uh, you know, I think it's, I, I always liked petite mal. It made me think, Small bad, not grand bad. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and I don't know a whole lot about French. I'm thinking it might come from French. I could be wrong. But, you know, at least you're right. We've gotten more technology. What we determined in the 1950s may have been totally appropriate and up to date then. As time has gone on, just like you talked about with our medication, things have gotten better and improved. So excellent question, Gary. I appreciate you calling in and asking that because I'm sure you're not the only person who was wondering about that. Okay, we have Dr. Joshi from Maui on the line. What can we do for Aloha. you today? Aloha. Thank you very much for your show. I always like hearing it every week, so thank you for keeping the, the topics very interesting. Thanks for listening. Uh, thank you. I had a question about seizures. Some people on Maui have been coming to me saying they'd like to use CBD oil or medical marijuana for seizures, and all I've been able to find is that marijuana decreased the seizure threshold, making it more likely that people might have seizures. So I was wondering if you could please discuss if there is any rule, if there's any role for CBD oil or medical marijuana for seizures, because so far I haven't been able to find any evidence that it helps. Great question, Dr. Joshi, because I think when you look at the current medical conditions which are allowing the prescription for medical marijuana, which we're still working on dispensaries here in Hawaii, but when you look at that actual list of diagnoses, epilepsy is on there. It's actually listed as one of the diagnoses that would be qualifying for having medical marijuana. So I'm curious, Dr. Wong, have you... Have you looked at some of the research about it? You're shaking your head like, yep, I know about this one, which is good because I just know it was on the list, and that's about as far as I know. So what, what do we know about the use of medical marijuana or CBD oil, and does it really decrease the threshold for seizures, which kind of sounds paradoxic? Right. So just to give some background, um, medical marijuana, um, basically there's two components of cannabis. There's uh, THC, which is the psychoactive component, which is thought to make people high. And then there's the CBD, which stands for cannabidiol. Um, which is um, the component that's um, thought to potentially help with epilepsy. Um, so currently, um, we, th we believe that CBD oil may have the potential to help with epilepsy. Um, there are actually active studies ongoing about using um, a very purified 99% um, CBD oil um, through a pharmaceutical company, and there's 
ongoing studies, um, especially in very um, children, children who have very severe forms of epilepsy, such as Dravet syndrome or Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. Um, so we we do believe that um, in the future that may be an option. Um, however, currently we are not recommending the use of medical marijuana um, for seizures. And like I said, that may change in the future. The problem with is with any pro, uh, any product that's not FDA approved. First of all, um, it's not a regulated product, so you don't know the purity of um, the product that you're getting. At this point, we don't know enough about the pharmacokinetics and how it interacts with other medications. So it's, there are still a lot of questions to be answered. So I've got a question, Dr. Wong. So mm-hmm. if, if we get dispensaries, which I think are going to happen mm-hmm. at some point in the near future, and a patient with epilepsy calls or comes to see me and says, mm-hmm. I want to use medical marijuana for epilepsy from our dispensary. Now, assuming that the dispensaries all worked perfectly and and it's the perfect world, is the answer to that question yes, it's one of the medical diagnoses? So, cuz there's still this question about purity and it may not be the oil, it may contain the THC. What should I tell them? Just like I said, call 911 or don't drive for 18 months. I might be thinking the wrong thing. In that situation, what should I do? So based on how we currently treat epilepsy, we definitely recommend the FDA-approved medications as the first line. And so there are, like I said, there's over 25 medications to try at this point that are FDA-approved. You know, sometimes we have Sometimes I have patients who um, are very insistent on trying medical marijuana because, as you said, it is on the list as, you know, epilepsy is on the list as one of the diagnoses. And, um, you know, if, like I said, we generally say, um, no, it's not advised. But if somebody does choose to go down that route, then, um, you know, we do recommend that they treat it like any other medication as far as being very cautious about how they start it up or how they stop it and um, being very, um, you know, paying attention to how it may interact with their medications, how it may make them feel, and definitely to inform their medical providers that they are using it so that they're aware. All right. Great question, Dr. Joshi, because I really think that started our discussion and it's really helping us to formulate what we should say. Kathleen? Uh, Just to go along with that, at the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii, we're here to provide um, the support for everything. What we want is to stop seizures, you know, and so therefore if they're still having seizures after they've received that first line of of drugs and and they're still, you know, um, experiencing seizures, we want to be able to provide information and support. So one of the things that we are looking to do next year, uh, hopefully in April or May, is a um, another small type of conference around medical marijuana where we can bring some uh, doctors and experts in to talk about it since it is, it is a lot of questions around it, especially with the dispensaries probably going to be opening around that time as well. Absolutely. Lots of information. We want to do what's best for our patients. Right but not put them in a situation where they're at risk or or we're not monitoring them carefully. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. All right. We have got Alan on the line from Maui. Alan, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. Um, thanks so much for your show. Um, I was actually diagnosed with um, a cavitaceous angioma, and um, I'm on uh, about 300 milligrams twice a day of Lamictal, and it's um, it's stopping the seizures, but the side effects are a little much. You know, it tends to make me really aggravated and things. And um, actually, through my neurologist here, uh, was trying to check out the CBD route, and 
wanted nothing to do with it. So I wondered, um, uh, there doesn't seem to be much happening on Maui. Uh, would it be worth coming to Honolulu to try to look for something more? You know, I've, I've actually gotten some of the CBDs online, and, you know, I don't know how good they are or aren't, but maybe as a second line of defense, um, you know, to treat this. Because uh, uh, I was thinking even maybe I was going to have to go to Colorado to find out more. But um, is there anything uh, in any doctors in uh, Honolulu who uh, would be able to work with my case, do you think? Well, it's a real interesting question. And I think, Alan, the one problem you have is you have something we talked about earlier in the show is anything in your brain that doesn't belong there. So it's not your fault. You have this cavitaceous angioma, which means you have this blood vessel that is obviously occupying space, which is why you're more at risk for having problems like seizures and thus the treatment with medication. So, you know, it's one of those difficult scenarios because great, if we could just take out this cavitaceous angioma and that is not an easy thing to do, which is why it has not yet come up as a recommendation. So part of the trouble I think that, and I know I myself and I'm sure Dr. Wong, you've been in a similar scenario is, despite the fact that Hawaii was one of the first, in fact, I think the first state to pass medical marijuana laws, we've never had dispensaries. In the absence of having a purified product, in the absence of having FDA studies on what's available now, it's really difficult for any physician to formulate a response to a treatment that, although considered legal, may not have the scientific studies we feel most comfortable with. And so, you know, our type of scientific studies try to take a look at comparing certain treatments with other treatments or with no treatment to see if it's actually going to work. And there's a lot of evidence that has to be proven before a medicine can get that label of being FDA approved. So not having that kind of puts us at a little bit of, of a downside because we don't have the same information we're comfortable with. That being said, it's not that these other treatments won't work. It's just that every physician has to establish their own personal thoughts on how they're going to handle the challenges of treatment for your situation. You're on a medication that's treating your seizures. You're having other side effects. It would be difficult, and I think, Dr. Wong, you sort of alluded to that earlier about not having necessarily the FDA approval or the studies, that it's really hard to know what should we do. And we're kind of out there on a limb in some ways trying to make recommendations without necessarily having the full information on the product that we're talking about. And, you know, that, that kind of puts us at a loss for anybody to tell you, Alan, I know Dr. So-and-so does this and uses this. I think it's not just Maui. I think across the island, in fact, even on the mainland, there are places where we just don't have the data to make a firm recommendation. Dr. Wong, I'm sure you, you hit something similar with this as well. Yeah, I think that... Um you know, I think the, bright, the the good news is that, you know, things may be, we may be having a very dis different discussion in about five to 10 years. You know, the, there are ongoing studies. I don't think that the medical community is against the use of CBD oil. It's just against the use of things that haven't been studied enough yet. And so, um, you know, there's definitely a push, especially from the Epilepsy Foundation and others to try to um, reschedule um, cannabis from Schedule, schedule one. 1. Exactly. Something else, right? Yep. And so um, in cases like that, you know, where research is done and research, if, if research does show that CBD oil works, then we may be the prescribers in a few years, but not right now, unfortunately. And so clinical trials, which are being done, yep. Alan, that might be something you could look into is are there clinical trials that you could participate in? Because those trials may actually allow you to be part of that research. 
And that would be a great way for you to figure out a way to treat your symptoms, but also potentially help the research community and help establish this as a standard protocol. All right. So thank you for calling us, Alan. And I appreciate your insight into being somebody who has the condition and who has side effects of medication. And how does that how does that make you want to treat this differently? Really important questions and, and great feedback from, from those callers thus far. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. If you'd like to talk with our panel of expert, I, experts, I have Natalie Morgan Romain here and Dr. Victoria Wong. They both work at the Queen's Epilepsy Center. Kathleen Stafosik is here. She's the executive director of the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii. And when we come back after this quick break, we're going to talk some, to some more callers. And we'll also talk a little bit about where the treatment of epilepsy is going within the next couple of years, if we can even make a thought of predicting it. You can always join us at 941-3689, toll-free 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Global warming got exactly zero questions in the presidential debates. Not much attention this cycle at all, which didn't surprise people up in the San Francisco Bay Area. One of the smart choices was to put this on the June ballot when there wasn't a lot of competition for people's attention. I'm Kai Rizdal. Timing is everything, even with elections. That story, the rest of the day's business news, and the numbers from Wall Street next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. The election has consumed the nation for more than a year. I am officially running. We're president of the United States. We're going to build the wall. Women's rights are human rights and human rights. We will make America. The process is rigged. Trump's hate. Tomorrow, the votes will finally be counted. NPR will have live round-the-clock coverage. Join us for results, reaction, and analysis of the big night. Coverage begins tomorrow at 2 p.m. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting and Sacred Hearts Academy. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Here in the studio, I'm talking with Natalie Morgan-Romain, nurse practitioner at the Queen's Epilepsy Center, Victoria Wong, neurology epileptologist, Queen's Epilepsy Center, and also Kathleen Stafosek, executive director of the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii. November is National Epilepsy Awareness Month, and we're talking about this condition because it's actually more common than you might think. Statistics show that 1 in 26 people may have it, estimated 15,000 people here in the islands who may have a diagnosis of epilepsy. Now, right before the break, we were talking a little bit with Alan from Maui. He wanted to know what's the latest on CBD oil for treatment for seizures, and unfortunately, the latest is we still need more information. But hopefully we'll get that within the next couple of years, if not sooner, and that'll allow us to be able to further serve the needs of patients here in the community who have this particular condition. Now, I'd like to talk now with Carla from Hunuanua, very patient on the phone. Carla, welcome to The Body Show. Hi there. Thanks Hi. for hanging on on the line. I've what can we do for question. you? Um, I I am 70 years old, and I have Asperger's syndrome, a high-functioning autism, and also um, petite mal seizures that seem to be getting uh, more frequent, you know, more more frequent. Uh, and I'm wondering, is that common for people with autism to have uh, petite mal seizures, and does it get, uh, I cannot take the, the medicine. It, it, it does not work for me at all. 
And I'm just wondering, is that a common thing, and, and does it get worse as you get older? Great question, Carla. So you, unfortunately, were diagnosed with petite mal seizures. We talked a little bit about that earlier, yeah, how that may be. Maybe the you um, stare okay. and just kind of zone out and lose time. And um, I think it happens more frequently as you get older, and I'm just wondering, is that... But I'm having a lot of trouble with the medicine. I can't, really can't tolerate it. Well, let's see what our neurologist says. So, you know, we talked a little bit about the different types of seizures, and it sounds like Carla's having maybe the Epson seizures where she's describing staring. And Dr. Wong, there's, you said like 25 different medications for different types of seizures. Do these particular absence, absence, absence types of seizures get worse as you get older? And if so... Are there a bunch of different medications you could try? When I hear somebody say they've tried, they can't tolerate the medicine, that could be the case. There are a lot of side effects. Um, what what could you do? Well, I think one thing is that it's very important to um, establish what what the diagnosis is, first of all. So you mentioned that you have petite mal seizures, and as we talked about before, that can mean um, a number of different seizure types. Um, so the, the good news is that these days with technology, we're able to actually um, bring people into an epilepsy monitoring unit in order to try to record these seizures while, they're, um, while getting EEG testing. So um, we basically are able to record brain waves to look for abnormal electrical activity and see if we we can see um, and, and see if there are seizures coming from one part of the brain or coming from um, the entire brain networks at once. And these have different treatments. And um, it may be that, um, you know, sometimes patients can have staring episodes for other reasons also. That's a really good important point, which is confirm the diagnosis. And if someone's having them frequently enough, you may have that opportunity to do EEG monitoring while they're having the episode. Then you can really see what their brain is doing. Mm-hmm. And if they are having more frequent episodes, then take a look at different types of medicines, maybe adjusting dose. And sometimes you need combinations. Mm-hmm. So um, there are certain medications that um, can be used for one epilepsy type but not the other, and we um, want to get down to the bottom of what the diagnosis is in order to treat it properly. Really important point. Figure out the diagnosis, step one. And mm-hmm. once you have that exactly, then you can take it to the next step. Mm-hmm. Natalie Morgan Romain, you deal with patients all the time. You are a nurse practitioner helping people who have epilepsy and figuring out what is the best way for them to treat their condition. How often do you find that people have well-treated epilepsy and do fine? Or do you often see that people need to have a variation in the types of treatments that they have as time goes on because things change? Yeah. So the majority of people have well-controlled epilepsy after the first medicine or the first few medicines that are tried. But about 31 third of the population don't aren't that lucky. They don't have well-controlled seizures. So 30% of people who take yeah. medication, the initial medicine may not work. May not work. They may continue to have seizures on two medicines or different trials of medications. And so at that time, it's important to look at what other treatment options are available. And so you mentioned, uh, Dr. Wong mentioned earlier, even surgery in some cases could be something they need to do. I would imagine the group of people who wind up doing surgery for seizures is probably pretty small. Yeah. What is 
Yeah. So um, basically, if somebody's failed a large number of medications, so so basically, after the if somebody has tried one seizure medication and it doesn't work, and then they try a second seizure medication, it doesn't work, and they're both at both fair trials of the medication, then they're in a group that um, of what we call patients with refractory epilepsy. So epilepsy that's um, resistant to medications. And that's really when we, um, you know, we still continue the different medication trials, but that's really when we look into um, whether epilepsy surgery is an option. So um, not everybody in that one-third um of the population of people with epilepsy can get epilepsy surgery. Um, so it is a relatively small number, but um, the number is probably larger than the people who are, yeah, so. So so what is epilepsy surgery? What do they do? Yeah, so in epilepsy surgery, um, we have to get a, um, compile a lot of information. So we um, get a good brain scan, so an MRI of the brain, and we do EEG monitoring to try to record seizures to see where the seizures in the brain are coming from. And once we have that information, um, we can try to localize, so figure out where in the brain the seizures are coming from and whether that area can be removed by epilepsy surgery. Um, And if that area is something that could be removed. If there's exactly. a connection between two areas, you don't want to make someone trade seizures for paralysis or something along those yep. lines. Yeah, so we make sure that it's a safe area of the brain to mm-hmm. take out, and we do um, what we call neuropsychological testing, so a number of memory tests um, to see what the function of different areas of the brain is and um, and whether one area is weaker than the other as far as uh, cognitive function. So it really takes, in order to, to have that as something that is offered, you, you really have to have tried basically everything else. Because once you do a surgery, you can't put it back the way it was. Exactly. Okay. So it's really a, a serious situation. Okay, let's talk with Julie from from Hawaii Island. Julie, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. Um, I was listening earlier to the comment about the ketogenic diet, and I was a little surprised that it was such a brief uh, comment. I know that well, um, you know, when hold on. In a couple of months, I'm going to have a nutritionist on because she has actually told me that several times when we talk about diet, it's not a big focus. So I've got somebody coming to help discuss exactly what you're talking about. How can dietary things affect our health and medical conditions? Yeah, I, so you know, as, as I've got a plan. Who, someone who has, um, I, I had an extensive frustration with my, my traditionally trained medical doctor and a change of diet helped me. I have a close friend whose child has epilepsy, and um, he has been completely seizure-free for a couple of years now based on changing his diet. And so I just I felt like in a, in, in a comprehensive conversation about epilepsy, people should know that while it may not work for everybody, it really is a legitimate option for some people. You are absolutely correct, Julie. And one of the, uh, one of the interesting things about the diet is that you know, really, and this is sort of the scary fact that just scares me endlessly when I think of lunchtime, you are what you eat. And so much of what we eat has a direct impact on how our body functions. And I think a lot of times that often is just overlooked entirely. And so the the conventionally trained doctors are now really focusing quite a bit more on what does it mean to have adequate nutrition and diet and what does it mean to different medical conditions so you know excuse our ignorance as we trained in medical school for many years and the focus was on treating disease and not necessarily 
using food as medicine, but I've got a great show coming up for you in about four weeks that you're going to love because someone else sent me the same comment and said, you know, you talked about arthritis and joints and changing your diet can help. We're going to have a whole show talking just about dietary effects and how it can help medical conditions. But before I make you wait for a month, Natalie has some thoughts on this. Natalie? So both the ketogenic diets and the modified Atkins diet as well as the low glycemic index diet or even the MCT diet, all have data to show that it it can effectively reduce seizures. It's not an easy thing to do. It requires a daily adherence to a change in the way that we typically eat food. A lot of our American diet is typically carbohydrate-based, where all of the, the diets that are used in epilepsy treatment specifically dramatically reduce carbohydrates. And there's a, a... uh, you, you need to have the fat composition of the diet that's different than a, a quote-unquote healthy diet. So they're definitely medical diets, and they can be medically managed. Um, the difficulty with changing your diet to affect seizure control versus taking a pill is that it requires a lot of education and, and daily adherence to that. For many, they can't cope with that. It's not something that they would want to do. They're tied to their food choices, especially in adults. But there is data to show that it can be quite effective for epilepsy. Well, and in fact, I have I have a patient whose son has epilepsy. She's actually fairly active in your foundation, and she's she's tried this. And, and the ironic thing is, she said it's really hard, and her son never really wants to follow it. And as soon as he goes out to dinner with dad, the whole thing is blown because he says, give me some carbs. And dad says, okay. And boom, here we are again. So it's it's a great option for some, not for, for everybody. Some. As Julia astutely noted, she said it's not for everybody, but it could help some people. And I think if you... If, it's, if you're having side effects from medication, it's a great thing to consider. If you can find ways to find foods that are fun and exciting for kids that don't make them feel like they're the outcast outsider and can't do what everyone else does. We talked about that earlier. Kathleen, you mentioned that having a group of kids come together and all kind of realize that they're normal, that mm-hmm. it's okay, is a really important part of it. So, I, yeah, I want to just mention that we have, I'm going to shamelessly plug our, our conference that's coming up. We were about uh, to talk about it. So let's on, do it now. On on Saturday, this coming Saturday, November 12th, um, from 8 30 until 3.15 in the afternoon at Queen's Conference Center. We're going to be having our Breakthrough Epilepsy Conference in Education, Inspiration, and Innovation. And we are going to be talking, we have a panel um, that's going to be talking about epilepsy diets because this is something that we have heard in the past from our conference attendees that they were interested in learning more about. So there will be a panel um, and you can register for free. It's a free conference um, at epilepsyhawaii.org backslash conference. And and um, come in and learn about um, different things. We're going to be having um, the role of genetics testing in pediatric epilepsy. Um, we're going to be talking about um, the building resilience um, in, with a community. Uh, Dr. Wong is actually going to be talking about pregnancy and epilepsy as well. Um, and then we do, um, one of the things that we do is um, artistic expression, art therapy at the foundation. And we actually have our art therapist who has um, worked with us for the past two years. I'm um, going to be coming in and, and talking about um, art therapy as well. 
the type of art therapy anyone could do, even the non-artists <laughs> like me? It is. Anybody can participate, yes. Okay. And I'm, I'm right there with you. I've so. tried that whole paint something, uh, you know, yeah. paint with wine or something. And I got to tell you, I should have drank more wine <laughs> because I don't know what that painting was. And I gave it to Goodwill because it was not looking good. So it sounds like this is a great event. And I know in the past you've had quite a few people that have shown up. Really this supportive community that has come together to say, let's go ahead and learn about something. And great that you mentioned exactly what Julie said. People who went said, we want to hear about nutrition. How does that affect the condition? And so you brought somebody to talk about that. And this is a local conference. We're not um, bringing anybody from the mainland or anything like that. It's local with local doctors, um, local resources. And um, this way, it's for our community. So please come. Please register. Please attend. There's there's going to be a free lunch. So, you know, go go online and register so we can have um, adequate numbers um, for, for people. And would this ever be available for people to watch on the website later? Have we thought about that? Is that like a future vision? That is something that we're trying, and and we would love to get with Alelo to be able to come out and do it. It is on a Saturday and not a weekday, um, simply because that allows for our community to attend without having to take off work. Um, So with that being said, we will try to to get as much. We might be able to post slides or information, but maybe not necessarily a video um, of it, but we'll try. And so if there are slides and things, people could go to, to the website, the website afterwards, epilepsyfoundation.org. Epilepsyhawaii.org. Epilepsyhawaii.org. Yeah. That tells you how much I remembered. Oh, no. I better write it down. Okay. And then read my handwriting, which I don't know about you, Dr. Wong, but I'm a hopeless cause. So let's think about in the next five years, do you think we could ever cure epilepsy? So there's certainly a lot of people who are trying, working on it and have been for years, but um, it's such a multifaceted disease that it's really um, challenging to find sort of the ultimate cure for epilepsy. Um, now, that said, there have been some um, you know, new therapies. Um, there's always new medications that have come around um, that have just recently been impro- approved, and there are also, um, there's also neuropace, uh, responsive neurostimulation, um, which is a procedure where um, seizures, um, you can put an electrode um, in, into the brain um, to try to uh, record seizures and um, try to stop them before they occur. Um, so there are a number of new therapies um, and certainly people working on all aspects of um, learning more about epilepsy, but um, it's really um, challenging and five years is certainly not the timeline to have that resolved. So potentially maybe some new medications, maybe more research done on CBD oil or some other type of treatment that we might have now that has not yet been approved. But you're right. It's a multifaceted issue. We talked at the top of the show how there's a variety of different reasons why people may have this condition. And, you know, it may not be something as easy to resolve as we think. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to thank all of you for being on today. Thank you to Natalie Morgan Romain, nurse practitioner, Queen's Epilepsy Center. You spearheaded coming on today, so I appreciate you coming and taking your time. Dr. Victoria Wong, epileptologist, Queen's Epilepsy Center. Thank you for sharing your expertise as well. And a great topic you're going to be giving, pregnancy and epilepsy, a scary time for women who are afraid that taking medication could affect 
their baby or themselves. And Kathleen Stefosik, soon to be a resident of Australia. Oh We're goodness. sorry to have you <laughs> depart, but you're currently the executive director of the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii and also spearheading this wonderful event this weekend. Please go to their website, Hawaii, epilepsyhawaii.org, to find out more. Great conference, and I know that people have learned a lot in the past and will continue to do so as time goes on. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Koslovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week.